Once again, we're in Hebrews chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verse 8. Verse 8 says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Let's go before the Lord. Our most gracious and almighty Heavenly Father, Lord, we assemble today in this place that we may meet not with one another, but with you, O God. That we would come together in spirit and in truth and worship the almighty God of Israel, the only God, the God of heaven. Lord, we come because you have written this text and it speaks of your son whom you have sent to die on the cross for us. And as we read the text this morning, God, I pray that each and every one of us would receive from your spirit the truth and the knowledge of your son and how majestic his name is, how worthy of worship he is, how he is the unique son of God to fulfill all prophecies of the Messiah, to be the sacrificial lamb that you have sent for us, O oh God. I pray that for those who aren't here this morning, Lord, that your spirit be upon them, that you would minister to them, that you would give us opportunities as a body to minister one to another and to those who are not here. God, that we would see the importance of reading your word, of prayer and supplication, of worship and exaltation of your son, that we might be the servants that you have called us to be. God, we ask that you would remove sin from us this moment, Lord, that you would provide your gracious forgiveness, that we may boast only in the Lord and in the power of his might. God, we thank you for your many wonderful blessings, both temporal and spiritual. God, we ask this day that you would bless the reading of your word and apply it to our hearts, God, that we would be sanctified and more like your son Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I used to think that the book of John was my favorite book of the Bible and, and maybe it still might be but as I continue to read over and over again just this first chapter of the Hebrews it's it's tremendous how this is really a, a scripture concentrate of everything that we see of Christ from Genesis to maps how there's a revelation of Jesus Christ and it's summed up in Hebrews chapter 1 and this morning we look at verse 8 and I'll read it again it says but of the son he says your throne O God is forever and ever and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom or in later manuscripts it says the scepter of your kingdom it doesn't matter we understand that it's speaking there of the one who is on the throne the one who owns the throne but today we'll look at verse 8 in conjunction with those things that we've learned over the past few weeks and he says here uh, and this is how i like to take scripture 
And it may help some of you at home to read the passage and then just look at one word at a time. And then after you look at each word by itself, then go back and look at the groups of words, maybe two or three. And then the whole again. And sometimes the Lord uh, will reveal things to you that you haven't seen when you read so quickly over it. And it's been monumental in the way that I study the Scripture. And it's certainly of the Spirit that we can understand these things. Uh, For the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God which is who ministers to us the truths of the Scripture. He says, but of the Son. Now we've talked how Jesus is to be exalted above the angels, and it asks, has He said this to the angels? Has He said this to the angels? Has He said this to the angels? And the answer every time is no, no, no. But here we have verse 8, the culmination of these things uh, from 5 to 7. It says, but of the Son He says... It begins with a a great contrast to that of verse 5. It says, for to which of the angels did he ever say? But verse 5 asks, for to which of the angels? In contrast to what we see in verse 8 where he says, but of the Son he says. Haven't said these things or written these things to created beings, but to one who is not created, one who is eternal. And so our attention is drawn to what has been said of Christ. It's drawn to the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the monogenes in the Greek, the unique one, the only one of the Father, the one who shares His divine nature. The emphasis is that no angel has the Father ever spoken these words, but to the Son does He speak and proclaim such as what we see today in verse 8. The truth reveals the supremacy of Christ. And his exaltation over created beings and even that of the angels, which, may I remind you, are created beings. They're lower than Christ. Jesus himself being the very creator of all that is created. So in conjunction with these previous passages, we see the premier greatness of Jesus Christ in contrast to that of the angels, as it says in the previous verse, that the angels, he makes winds. He causes them to be. He commands the angels. Therefore, we have this supremacy of Christ as it goes forward. But it, the text tells us uh, as it begins, but of the Son, he says, speaking of God, we go back to verse 1 to see who that uh, first he, when it says, but of the Son, he says, it's speaking of God. God, after he spoke. It says in the first verse, so God here is speaking of the Son. We see that there are these angels. They're submissive beings. They're fulfilling the will of God by their submissive action to the commands of the Son who is on the throne. They are ministers, ministers of His holy commands, and we'll soon see this as verse 8 progresses. Also at this time, we'll take notice that throughout this entire passage, The whole passage, we see the supremacy of Christ over that of the angels and created beings. We know that this passage is written for the saints, and it's done so for many purposes, but more so for the edification of the saints, for the teaching of the saints, and for the reproof of the saints. If they would fall into some false belief that angels or created beings were somehow equal to or greater than Christ, If this truly is being written to Hebrew believers during the original time period, it's being written 
to correct those thoughts that they have that are drawing them away from Christ. But God in His infinite wisdom knew as He created the Scriptures. uh, And when I say that, I mean created the Scriptures in their written form. We know that He did not create the living Word, which is Jesus Christ, because He's eternal. But He provided this because He knew that the modern church, that the church in the last days would also be drawn away from Christ. And we must be reminded of something, that something is the Gospel. The truth of Jesus Christ Himself. So we see this through the entire passage. It's, uh, it's important because it is for reproof for all of us when necessary that we stray away from the Christ, that we be sidetracked. I talked to Bethany this morning. I, I saw uh, a guy that I know and he said, I've searched for years for an answer in the Bible as to what was the thorn in Paul's flesh. And this morning, I think I found it. I said, you know what's sad about that? Is that I, I've done that too. I've wondered many times about what was that thorn in Paul's flesh, but the Bible doesn't tell us because that's not what we should look at. The fact is that not that there's a thorn in the flesh because we all have them, but that there's a Christ who is greater than the thorn, who is able to deliver us from the thorn. And it's sad that this passage is for those of us who would be taken away by, by even Scripture itself because we're reading it with the minds of mere mortal man rather than by the Spirit of the Holy God. And so we see that this text is written for at the time, of course, the Hebrew people, but it's written for the church today. It's written for you and I. It's written for the bride of Christ. Anyone who would call themselves followers of Christ and would take up a cross. And it's a cross that's not their own, but because they've been crucified with Christ, it's a cross that belongs to Christ Himself. It's righteousness that we would walk upright with a burden to share the gospel. But the real truth of this passage is not that it's written directly for us. But if you'll notice the context, it says, but of the Son He says. Listen to what He says. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne. This isn't necessarily just God speaking to His people. But this is an intimate conversation that we're given uh, the ability to understand and read this morning that it was spoken from God the Father to God the Son. He didn't say God told us that this was the throne of His Son. He was talking to the Son. He was saying, this is your throne. And it's forever. It's eternal. And so we have a glimpse of this conversation between the two persons of the Godhead. It's very interesting. And now the third person of the the Godhead we see is brought in to reveal the truth and minister to us Jesus Christ and the fruit thereof that is spoken of in the text. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is a direct quote from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. God the Father speaking to the Son. Even then, think about that. Pre-incarnate Christ, we have these words spoken. That the throne is yours. In Psalm 45, what does this tell us? That Christ couldn't be a created being. That He must be eternal. That the throne must belong to Him inherently because only God can rule the throne. 
Therefore, there is the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the eternal Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, shown to us in Psalm 45 and verified for the Hebrew people who thought that they knew God through the Scriptures. There it is again, an exact quote. And notice what he says. Your throne, O God. The same thing that we see from Thomas after he sees the resurrected Jesus. My Lord, my God. How wonderful is this that we don't have to argue with people over the deity of Christ because it's written in the Word. Even for Orthodox Jews, it's written there in Psalm 45 that He is God. The Father calls Him so. Speaking of Jesus, God says, Your throne. We should see several things in this phrase. All centered around the possession of the throne. It's not a throne that is earned. It's not a throne that is received. It's not a throne that has been overtaken by someone more powerful. Because it belongs to the all-powerful Jesus Christ. The throne is a place of mercy, a place of grace, a place also of judgment and decree. For it was while on the throne that heavenly intercession is made for sinners such as you and I. Isn't that wonderful? And then we see that the angels in the previous verses are commanded to do as the Father's will so declares. They're answering to the one who is in charge, who is seated on the throne. The throne itself denounced a position of one who is just. Indeed, a person who is perfect, who can declare nothing wrong or make a mistake. There is but one person who this throne could belong to. And we know that that is Jesus. In our understanding of the scripture, we know that it was first revealed in Psalm 45. And many will apply this psalm un, unbeknownst to them wrongfully as if it was as if it were to Solomon. Or we will see it as a text, maybe applying directly to Solomon, but uh, to Christ as well, and more infinitely to Christ, of course. But still, there's a failure there to see that this psalm is of Christ and of Christ alone. Jesus didn't say you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of Solomon and myself. He says that they testify of me. This is the real disconnect that some in Christianity would have by reading this and thinking that it was intended to speak of Solomon. For it accurately depicts only one person. Would it not be too bold of a statement to say that Solomon is the most handsome of the sons of men because that's what the text says? Wouldn't that be a very bold statement to make as we know that not all of humanity has been born yet? It would be like saying that one of us was the, the prettiest person to ever live and yet we know that people will have babies today and tomorrow and, until Jesus comes the second time. So we know that it couldn't have been talking about Solomon. There's an entire population yet to be born. Still, there are men to come. And then it says that there's grace upon his lips. Is there grace upon the lips of a sinful man? And I would submit to you that I think not, except for a few fleeting moments. This is why we're reminded to be in the text, because the truth is that our lips often have those things which are unclean coming from them. 
Not that there would be grace always upon the lips of this man. That's why I couldn't speak there again of Solomon. Could it do this if the tongue be cut off? Because that's what we need to do. If it causes us to sin, cut it off. Surely the lips could utter nothing if they were of Solomon because he has a tongue and lips that should be cut off for they're unclean for they cause him to stumble. He could only but maybe at best for a brief moment speak the truths of the gospel just as you and I. More often we're reminded that by the flesh we pervert everything, that we make everything unclean. Certainly by the lips do we make things unclean. Their fruit is most often bitter and poison. Lips in the flesh are certainly more representative of foolishness rather than the wisdom of God for which they are called to be. Lying lips, they're deceitful from the womb. Who is mighty but the Lord? Now remember that we're considering this particular quotation from Psalm 45 in its entirety. Who is mighty but He? None are righteous. And most assuredly, none are anointed with the oil of gladness above one, namely Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. That's what the name Christ means. The deity of Christ alone is able to promote His worthiness to be seated at such a throne. Now we know before Christ takes on flesh, He is this I Am that we see. The Old Testament, the New Testament, He proclaims this is why they want to stone Him. This is why they want to lay hands on Him. This is why they want to kill Him because He proclaims, I Am that I Am. Here is the firstborn, the begotten Son, the Lamb of God, the Son of David. Yet many still deny Him even after the prophecies are fulfilled. Is it so hard to believe? No, because we see it every day. The natural tendency of a man is to make less of Christ when Hebrews chapter 1 is saying, exalt Him, make more of Him. The throne is for one who rules and who is able and who is worthy to rule. We sing it in many hymns. Our God reigns. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever, the same God that has eternally existed before all of creation. He is sovereign God, as we'll see when we make it to the end of the text. He sits upon a throne that will never allow a lesser to rest upon its majesty. For one must ascend higher than he, and he is the pinnacle of existence, both mortal and immortal. There is no one higher to whom we may appeal, nor shall we turn to the left or to the right, for no one stands equal. Jesus is God, and the text tells us that God the Father says that the throne is His, rightfully belonging to Him. And just as a side note, notice this from uh, the quotation in Psalm 45. It says the th same thing. Your throne, O God, is forever. The throne was already a possession of Jesus Christ. It was already His. He didn't have to work for it. He didn't have to earn it because it belonged to Him. He wasn't a caretaker. 
it was his. We see it with the parable of the talents and many other parables that that which is there belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. Every possession on earth and in heaven is a possession of Christ. Why is this so? Because rightfully, no other could hold such a position or an authority. Inherently, it belongs to Jesus Christ, the throne and all the powers and authorities in thereof. So here we have the eternal father speaking to the eternal son of a throne that is also eternal because it says is forever and ever. This is speaking also of a reign that accompanies this throne that is also forever and ever. At this ruler of this throne will every knee bow and will every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. If we have a forever throne, could it be the one of Psalm 146 verse 10? The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Of course that's what it's speaking of. Of course Christ is the one who it's speaking of. And to those who question the very nature of Christ, being truly man on one hand and on the other hand, truly God, consider Psalm 47 verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. That's Psalm 47, the same throne that we see in Hebrews chapter 1, the same throne that we see in Psalm 45. He's already there. Reigns over the nations, the one who sits on the throne. Hebrews 1 is a historical document where God is telling us that Jesus sits on the throne. And when we see this alongside Psalms, we see that in fact, Jesus is God Almighty. Exodus 15 declares His reign is eternal. Psalm chapter 10, verse 16. Lamentations 5, 19. Psalm 145, 13. Daniel 4, 34. Daniel 6, 26. Micah 4, 7. 1 Peter 5, 11. Look these things up. See that they're true. So we have, but of the Son, speaking of Jesus Christ, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then it says, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. Or in your versions, it may say the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This scepter is the staff of Christ. I would belabor everyone here to see that every scepter is a staff, but not every staff is a scepter. For a scepter is a staff carried by a ruler. Carried by one in complete sovereign authority. It is a staff belonging to royalty. For the church, this will be another wonderful truth. And you may ask why? What's so wonderful about this royal staff, this scepter that he's speaking of? The truth is this. That our faith in Christ relies on the fact that he is in fact royalty. That he's not mere man, that he is God made manifest in the flesh, sent to die a horrible, gruesome, shameful death on the cross in order that he may quench the full wrath of the Spirit of God as it belonged to men. This wrath do disgusting sinners like myself. That's you 
It's I. It's everyone who claims to have faith in Jesus Christ and has a truly repentant faith that is known by its fruits. After he was dead, buried, and resurrected, he ascended into heaven. But in the midst of conquering sin and death, a mighty reality is unfolding that we too may conquer death. We too may see eternal life through faith in Him, the resurrected Messiah. How is this possible? It's very simple. Jesus is God. He is eternal. He owns the monopoly on eternal life. Only He can receive it. Therefore, He makes eternal union with His bride, the church. He makes eternal union through His propitiation that we, His bride, might inherit what is His. Isn't that wonderful? Only God has eternal life. How can we receive it? Lest we be brought to an eternal union through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and be made alive in Him. Therefore, since like Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Jesus Christ, we can receive eternal life because it belongs to those who inherit it. It belongs to Christ Himself and no one else. We are the bride. And I'll say this, it's not to necessarily build us up, but we are royalty. The Bible declares it. We serve the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The scepter is the symbol of sovereignty. And I don't want to say that God is sovereign over this and that because the word sovereign means He's sovereign over everything. How foolish it is for us to have to describe that, but it's necessary at times. He controls everything. <laughs> Nothing is without and apart from His will. Furthermore, we see from a scepter the right to judge as it is a means of Christ's throne that He would judge. Some months back we heard a message. It's probably almost a year now. From Esther chapter 4, verse 10. I don't want to read some of that to you. It said, Then Esther spoke and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, and that's to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, she says, I have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. It says in chapter 5, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out uh, to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. What do we see about the scepter from this particular passage? The king would sentence to death anyone that would come into His presence, that would come before Him, and we know that no one can hide from God. Everyone is before Him. The problem is that their knees not bow and their tongue is not confessed. Not everyone. You can't hide from God. So we're all before this King. He'll put you to death because you deserve it. But His judgment, just like the King in Esther chapter 4 and 5, His judgment was made known by the movements of His scepter. 
Much like we see the judges gavel today as it comes down. To set to decree that which is decided, that which has been judged. But we see here by the king of grace and mercy that same extension that was made to Esther. An extended motion of the scepter to where it is lifted out to pardon one from the death that they are due. For is it not true what David said of the staff of the Lord? This same same scepter. Remember this. This staff. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. There's the scepter. There's the rod. There's the staff. This is what David wrote of it. The Lord's staff is not only a staff of judgment, but a staff of those who are born again in Christ of grace and mercy. And He is indeed the Good Shepherd as He has declared in John. The one whose staff extends to the furthest decrees and degrees of sin to the closest borders of hell, to snatch from its boundaries sinners to whom have been given faith and repentance. This is the staff, the scepter that belongs to Jesus Christ. His staff leads sheep. His staff comforts us. It takes hold of us. It defends us. For the power of the right hand is of truth and righteousness. May it be the offensive judgment of God or the defensive word of God. See, the staff is dual purpose, multi purpose. If we would take it even further, the staff serves this twofold purpose to represent salvation, as with Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. Then again, as we look back to the sign given to Pharaoh by the changing of it to a serpent, that he would not believe that this is the God of the Bible, that he would not release the people, and so the staff brings judgment. But then with Moses, it parts the sea and offers deliverance. It was a sign given from God that He would lead His people from captivity. Much more for the Christian shall it also represent a rod of correction. Whereby sheep respond to do as the shepherd commands. Then with the addition of Mark chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And He called the twelve And began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Notice what he says they need. And yes, there's an immediate literal context. He says the apostles only need a staff, but that was speaking of something spiritual. The staff by which Christ rules the world. As he's seated upon his throne, the throne that belongs only to him, this tells the truth of this righteous scepter, this upright scepter. It is by his correction that we walk circumspectly. Now upright, and by it the apostles may fend off anything that might attack. By this very one scepter may Christ also rule. He needs no guards. He needs no security. He needs no executioners. To exact his commands. But we know by the creation account. That his power lies within himself. 
and his righteousness that he may speak and it may be done. The righteous scepter is testifying of the graces of God in repentance and forgiveness of sins and in thereof of justification as it is outstretched just as is the love of Christ in redemption of mankind. The scepter is extended. It represents the love of God extended to the forest boundaries. May you be so separated from God that it seems impossible, but his scepter extends. David says that this staff, this rod, it comforts him. For those found in him, the righteous scepter of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in no uncertain terms, is the long arm not of the law, but the long arm of grace. Just as with Esther, who deserved death for coming before the king, it's an extension that grants life where was due death and an inheritance where there was a deep wickedness and poverty. Sounds wonderful, right? The scepter of Jesus Christ. The eternal throne. The reign that is forever and ever. That no other than Jesus is able to judge or grant pardon the truth of the cross and the gospel of its Savior and its power. Is that we know to whom we must run for asylum, for righteousness, for justification, for peace with God, for no man No flesh may be reconciled to God except through Jesus Christ. No one else can offer these things. This is why the text reigns over everything in our minds to tell us that Jesus Christ is supreme. The throne belongs to Him. He is higher than the angels or any other created being. He is eternal and forever. We can turn to no one but one Jesus Christ. And if you thought that this was all the text had to offer to this point. I'll ask you to look back to the previous passage, to the previous verses from 5 forward, and notice this exposition of the text. We just saw what verse 8 means. Now let's bring them all together as they relate to the building knowledge of the divine Christ. We take them all in conjunction. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after He spake long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in the last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Jesus, Creator. Jesus, Prophet. First two verses. Jesus the prophet. God spoke to the prophets in times past. Now Jesus the final prophet. Now verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus priest. Have Jesus prophet, Jesus priest, one who's making purification for sins at the time when priests would bring the sacrifices. Jesus not only brings the sacrifice according to the will of God, that he would be submissive to the will of God and go willingly as a sacrificial lamb, but he brings it and he is that sacrificial lamb. So we have Jesus prophet, Jesus priest. And then four through eight, having become much better than the angels, inherited a name more excellent than they, For to which of the angels did he say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him and the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Jesus King. Hebrews chapter 1 through verse 8 contains so many things of the wonderful majesty of Jesus Christ and His deity. But bring it all together and it tells us this essential truth that we believe as Christians. Jesus is the final prophet, priest, and only King. It's amazing that just so many short verses could bring to remembrance so many wonderful things about Jesus and the offices that He holds that only belong to Him. And we're in no way done with Hebrews chapter 1. We're just beginning. But we begin with this understanding that Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, Jesus is king, Jesus is creator, Jesus is higher, and to be exalted above all names, it causes us to remember our, our idolatry. It's written because we put so many things above Jesus. The message to us this morning is not is Jesus prophet, priest, and king, but Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Do we live as if we believe that? Is there fruit coming forth from the faith that we have in Jesus Christ that says we believe He is who He says He is? We believe who God the Father says He is. We believe who we claim He is in church. Now do we live it out? Do we rest assured at night that Jesus has completed the work on the cross. That truly, when he said to Telestai, that it was finished and is finished, that pardon for sins is made complete by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And if we say, no, we truly haven't, then we have need to come before him because he's the king. He's the king who can extend this scepter that would bring judgment and bring death but also at the very same hand, it extends grace and mercy, forgiveness of sins. It causes one to be regenerate, that he may worship truly in spirit and in truth. This is the salvation that we need in Christ. And many of us have received it and have done well to receive it, but this morning we would do well to remind ourselves of just how infinite and eternal and majestic is the name of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you once again, God, we thank you for the revelation of this conversation between yourself and your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. that we see an infinite plethora of spiritual wisdom hidden in the text of these pages or that would cause us to see how sinful we are as man but how wonderful and powerful and valuable the blood of your son is that it's able God to cover every sin God, that's not our purpose. 
come to you because we need salvation. Our purpose is to worship you because these things are true. God, we know that no one will worship you unless they be made regenerate. And so for that reason, God, we ask that your spirit testify the truths of the gospel of Christ this morning to every ear that has heard the message of Jesus Christ. But we ask that it be made effectual, Lord, not so that they would receive eternal life, but so that your son would receive the worship and the glory and the honor that should be ascribed to him, that should be given to him, Lord, for everything that he's done. Even, Lord, if we were for to get everything that he's done, if we would just worship him for being perfect, Lord, we could never do this apart from your spirit. So we ask that you would bless the reading, the study of your word this morning. Lord, we trust that your work on earth is not done because we're still here, God. I ask that you would make us humble and faithful servants, Lord, and grant us repentance daily, Lord, that we may be reminded of how much we need your Son, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the honor, and in his name we pray. Amen.